Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 349th edition of Talk Down Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA, as we know them to be. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Our lead story this morning comes from an email between you and our special guest this morning, Sharon Savisky. It's a subject that is both controversial and complex. Yes, it's a problem. Should your physicians add linking verbiage to their documentation for accuracy, which in turn has a negative impact on their publicly reported scores with complications and other data? Mm, good questions. And I look forward to hearing Sharon Savinsky report on this issue later in the broadcast. Speaking of coding, Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman is with us this morning. He will be reporting on what was not included in the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Mm, something's afoot there, that's for sure. And speaking of coding, Terry Fletcher is going to be reporting on issue C encountering with offshore physician coding. And, of course, you have a talkback segment this morning on the recent decision by CMS to conduct DRG validation audits. We have much news to report this morning during this broadcast. We'll begin with Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Lori's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on how to conduct DRG validation audits featuring Dr. Timothy Brundage. It's Wednesday, December 5th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our faithful listeners. Are you at risk with your spinal fusion coding? Spinal fusions are probably one of the most difficult procedures to code using ICD-10 PCS, as it is one of the most frequently performed procedures as well. The fiscal year 19 ICD-10 PCS updates deleted 87 spinal fusion codes that had Z as its device character. The reason is that these codes were removed because it was not possible to have a spinal fusion without a device. According to the definition of the root operation of fusion, a device is required. I urge you to review your spinal fusion DRGs for fiscal year 18. These include DRGs from 453 to 460 and 471 to 473. Look for, look for procedures that have a Z as a device character. Review those cases for appropriate root operation. Warning, there will be a negative MSDRG shift if you find any. I would love to know what you have found after you've completed your review, and you'll find my email address in the chat box. And I have an update on acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM. There are now 116 confirmed cases across 31 states, with the most cases reported in Colorado, 15, and Texas, which is 14. There are another 170 possible cases that haven't been confirmed. AFM is, a similar, is similar to a polio and leads to a sudden onset of paralysis. This condition mostly affects children younger than four. These patients experience a viral illness with a fever and cough three to ten days prior to the paralysis onset. This information is based on the Center for Disease Control report as of yesterday. Now for the 
flu update. Influenza A, H1N1, is the flu strain that has been reported so far this year. Influenza-like illnesses um, visits are 1.9%, which is below the normal national average of 2.2%. Kentucky is reporting the highest level of activity, which is at the regional level. No one is reporting widespread activity. And don't forget to identify your patients who are immunized with the diagnosis code of Z23. Now for some last reminders, this is National Diabetes Month, so make sure that you know your A1C number. The normal range is between 4 to 6%. This is a common blood test that is used to diagnose diabetes. January 1st begins a new year for physician, home health, hospital outpatient, and inpatient rehabilitation reimbursement, so make sure that you are getting prepared for that January 1st date. More facilities have been hit with ransomware. On November 23rd, Ohio Valley Medical Center and East Ohio Regional Hospital voluntarily started electronic health record downtown procedures due to ransomware, so be careful out there. And last but not least, this is Giving Tuesday, so make sure you support your charity for the holidays. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Lori, very much. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC, and she's a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board. It is, as Lori said, Giving Tuesday, Tuesday, November the 27th, 2018, and you're listening to the 349th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday Standby. Have you tried a HEMA's code check service? Get answers to all your tough ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, CPT, or HICS-PICS questions straight from the trusted leader in health information, AHIMA. Approved staff members have 24-7 access to the newly designed portal, where they can organize a library of solutions, receive status updates for outstanding questions, and gain insight into knowledge gaps. AHIMA's Code Check Service is built on the experience of over 90 years of coding excellence and is staffed by credentialed, experienced coders. Trust your questions to AHIMA, a recognized leader in HIM knowledge. Visit ahima.org slash codecheck to discover how your organization can benefit from AHIMA's expert coding support. Although CMS has released the final rule on the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, there's one issue that CMS did not include in this extensive update to explain what's missing. Here is Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman. Good morning, Dr. Lehrman. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you. The 2019 Physician Fee Schedule final rule was released on November 1st. Some of what was in the proposed rule was finalized and included. Some of what was in the proposed rule was modified and then included. And then there were three main items I'd like to cover this morning that were in the proposed rule that were completely eliminated and not included in the physician fee schedule final rule at all. The first of those was the proposal to reduce payment when a separately identifiable evaluation or management was provided at the same encounter as a procedure. They received a lot of feedback on this. They received comments about the definition of the 25 modifier, about the importance of respecting the 25 modifier, and this was not a budget-neutral proposal. And some of the comments they received spoke to the impact that this would have had on payment accuracy. So that was not finalized, but I think it's worth noting that it was even being considered and something for all of us to keep an eye on. The second proposal, which was not 
finalized was that to collapse payment for new and established office and outpatient evaluation and management services levels two through five. I've heard this uh, incorrectly stated that it was a proposal to collapse the codes, and that's not the case. They never proposed to change the codes in any way. What they proposed was to collapse the payment for certain codes. So that is not going into effect January 1, 2019. What the final rule tells us is that starting January 1, 2021, so two years from now, they are going to collapse payment for new and established office and outpatient evaluation and management services levels two through four. So for example, for a new evaluation and management, if you were to submit a 99202, 203, or 204, all three of those will pay one single rate. And that rate would be between what would have been a three and a four. Again, that goes into effect January 1, 2021. The third proposal that I wanted to touch on this morning, which was not finalized and completely eliminated, was that to establish separate codes for podiatric evaluation and management services. They had proposed to assign brand new E&M codes only for podiatrists to be used only for podiatric E&Ms, even though podiatrists are providing the same E&M services as their other physician colleagues. Fortunately, that proposal was not finalized. There was a tremendous response to that proposal from the podiatric world and even from the non-podiatric world, from those that just knew it was wrong and that people thought it would be establishing a dangerous precedent. Uh, One interesting thing that maybe we all could learn from is the e-advocacy system that the American Podiatric Medical Association put into effect for this, the APMA. Uh, This online system allowed users to submit comments directly to CMS easily with just one click. This e-advocacy system also communicates with both Twitter and Facebook so that when you use it, not only can you submit comment, but it also allows you to share your actions via your social forums to hopefully encourage others to participate. This e-advocacy system also allows users to communicate with their local congressmen, congresswomen, and senators. It knows where you are, so it sends your messages directly to your Congress people. APMA representatives also met uh, in person with CMS, with the White House Office of Management and Budget, with multiple congressional offices, including uh, members of the House Ways and Means Committee and members of the Senate Finance Committee. And these meetings uh, helped the podiatry issue get included in the bipartisan House letter, as well as in the bipartisan Senate letter, where both of those letters asked CMS to not include, to not finalize this proposal to assign separate G-codes for podiatrists for their evaluation and management services. So, Erica, those are the three things that I wanted to touch on uh, that were in the proposed rule that were not finalized in the physician fee schedule. That was an excellent review. Thank you, Jeffrey. That was Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman. Dr. Lehrman operates Lehrman Consulting, LLC. Dr. Lehrman is a fellow of the American Academy of Podiatric Practice Management. Chuck? Thank you very much, Erica. And thank you, Dr. Lehrman. And you can read Dr. Lehrman's excellent reporting on this subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. 
Our Tuesday focuses on the issue of offshore coding. Here now to report on the clinical and privacy issues that she is seeing in her auditing of physician coding is nationally recognized professional physician, coding expert, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry, and welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. So out of my 30 years in the healthcare industry, the last 10 years, I've been really immersing myself in the workings of foreign countries and how it relates to coding, billing, compliance, HIPAA, and protecting our health information. And I've found that there are many issues to consider before taking the leap, as so many practices have done, to outsourcing one's financial future to a different country. The practice is called offshoring, and the idiosyncrasies of working in different countries are numerous compared to the checks and balances that are required of U.S.-based companies. So just please consider the following before offshoring your health care needs. First of all, HIPAA. One of the top issues of concern for healthcare organizations, considering whether to outsource services to a foreign operation, is the protection of health information. It's imperative to make sure a HIPAA risk assessment of the operation is completed and proper security measures are in place to protect PHI. Also ask this, what laws are enforceable as applied to U.S.-based physician practice or a foreign-based billing company if it is not U.S.-owned? You must have a legal standing with the offshore company or your practice could be in major violation of HIPAA and other issues. Next is service. Many physician practices, practice clients of mine have experienced a great deal of frustration when trying to interface with a knowledgeable offshore company representative. I've worked with several overseas companies, and the lack of responsiveness and the ability to get the right people can definitely be frustrating. You will need to address this issue with your overseas partner prior to even becoming, to it even becoming an issue. Also, be aware that a common strategy used by overseas companies is to outsource their work to other companies. And it does make sense. Workloads can sometimes become more than expected, and affordable and capable labor can often be found at smaller companies. But just ensure that your contractual language states that you will be notified before any of your workload is outsourced to a company that you have not yet vetted. Now, I personally support the CPT coding and ICD-10 coding being performed here in the U.S. The CPT book is only available in the English language, and the payers do not allow claims to be submitted in any other language than English, so it is reasonable to ask your offshore company, do you know U.S.-based CPT coding, and what is your experience with my specialty, and please get references and proof of this knowledge. Do not make any assumptions of knowledge. Make the offshore company prove their experience and knowledge of your needs and of any coding that they perform. Language and culture can also be an issue. I frequently hear about frustration experience when try to under, trying to understand someone from another country. Although people from various countries speak English, their command of the language and accents will vary. If your patients are expected to interact with a staff member from a foreign country and your patient population includes a high percentage of Medicare and English-speaking patients, the level of frustration from patients will be the same as if they were trying to call a bank or an airline after hours and are routed to an operator overseas. This is not to say that they are not very capable people within offshore companies, but my feedback currently from clients is that they will sometimes tell me they get frustrated because individuals from a particular country always give an affirmative answer when asked if a function can be performed. So the representative may not be trying to deceive the client, but it's just their culture and how they want to please the client and do what's right. So in these scenarios, an affirmative answer needs to be followed up with further discussion to help ensure that that offshore company is, in fact, capable of performing the tasks that you need. A big issue in offshoring is staff turnover. It is important to recognize that turnover of staff is a constant issue faced by most companies, including overseas operations. 
but it is not unusual to have a turnover rate between 30 and 50% at some overseas companies. Ensure that the team member you will work with are being trained, that there is appropriate supervisory staff in place, and also they use audit processes to measure and monitor staff performance. My biggest peeve with offshoring would probably have to be outsourcing in general. Make sure there's a clear understanding of performance expectations, as you will have with any outsourced company. But overseas operations should have daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly reports. These reports should reflect performance, productivity, and operational assessments. These may include measures encompassing encompassing, uh, productivity, efficiency, and outcomes. Remember, you no longer have the same control from a vendor that you have over your own employees. So they may be improperly trained or unqualified, and now this leads to quality-controlled issues. I have personally had medical billing and coding staff from other countries contact me on my social media accounts to ask me a coding question where it was clear that the person did not have knowledge of the medical specialty they were attempting to code, and their command of the English language was actually suspect. There are other more variables basic to weigh when considering outsourcing to overseas operations. Access to electricity is a very real concern. Ensure there are backup generators available and that they are tested regularly. Depending on the country and even the part of the country, electricity could be a major issue. As overseas companies' operations grow, they will also sometimes expand or move their operation to secondary cities where there's cheaper workforce and lower overhead. When this occurs, access to the Internet and phone lines could also be compromised, and they might access or they might have trouble accessing reliable power sources. So ensure that your contract indicates the location of offices and notification of any relocation. This could be a problem. And then we get to cost. Yes, the costs associated with outsourcing a a function to an overseas operation can be very very appealing. For example, a charge entry person overseas can have an annual salary of $10,000 or less, while the same person working in the U.S. may make over 40, not including benefits and the cost of management. So while upfront savings of outsourcing can seem substantial, there is a hidden cost that's often overlooked. And this is really when we're looking at operations and management. You need people who will oversee these functions performed abroad. Also, the errors that have been reported by practices using offshore companies to provide billing, quoting, and reimbursement have increased exponentially over the years. So one thing is clear. Outsourcing in the way of offshoring is not going away anytime soon, despite the the negative perception that it's sometimes associated with, and it can be justified. In general, hospitals are moving more slowly than health insurers to send jobs overseas. But with financial pressures intensifying and the uptake of electronic medical record keeping accelerating, and the analysts and industry people see more consolidation of outsourcing ahead. So it's up to you to decide what you feel comfortable outsourcing. Offshoring is becoming more and more prevalent in the healthcare industry. So just be prepared. Back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck? Thank you very much, Erica. And thanks, uh, Terry. You can read Terry's excellent reporting on offshore coding in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Our lead story this morning comes from an email exchange between our next guest, Sharon Savinsky, and Dr. Erica Reamer. And essentially, the conversation was, should your physician add linkage verbiage to their documentation for accuracy, which in turn could negatively impact their public report scores? Joining us now is the aforementioned Sharon Savinsky. Sharon is the team manager for clinical documentation integrity specialist at Winchester Medical Center in Winchester, Virginia. Good morning, Sharon. Welcome to Talk to you Tuesday. So the question is, 
to link or not to link when it comes to physician documentation. Tell us more. This topic is something that has been troubling our organization, and hopefully we can generate some dialogue that would be of benefit. Since the adoption of the ICD-10 code set, clinical documentation integrity specialists have experienced an ongoing dilemma of capturing complication codes with regard to adverse drug effects versus known or inherent side effects. We ask our physicians to add linking verbiage to their documentation for accuracy in order to support severity of illness and risk of mortality. However, when it comes to medications and side effects, ICD-10 captures these as adverse with the intent of simply reporting data without scaling to severity, i.e. adverse or catastrophic versus inherent or common side effects which are not unexpected, severe or significant. Unfortunately, this has a negative impact on some publicly reported scores with regard to complications and other quality metrics that plague our organization and physicians. For example, hypokalemia due to diuretic results in a T-code being added. The same is true for hyperglycemia or leukocytosis due to steroids or alkalosis due to diamox. As clinicians, we do not necessarily consider side effects with the same intensity as a catastrophic or adverse event. Most patients who receive diuretics, steroids, or blood thinners in the inpatient or outpatient setting require monitoring or prophylactic supplements, i.e. potassium while on diuretics. It is unfortunate that during hospitalization, this may require capturing an adverse drug event code in the process. Similarly, documentation of leukocytosis, likely due to steroids, acknowledges a process going on that may not be infectious. In order for a physician to justify monitoring or ruling out a differential diagnosis, they may attribute a clinical indicator to some other cause. In addition, during hospitalization, it is not uncommon for the physician to monitor labs, lab trends to guide care and not necessarily adding additional resources for the sole purpose of checking or for questionable side effects. It is not our intention to complicate matters for our coding professionals to suggest they circumvent their guidelines to avoid capturing these diagnoses when linked, nor is it our wish to unfairly attribute complications to our physicians. According to the 2019 coding guidelines, coders are required to query the surgeon when clarification is needed to differentiate whether a diagnosis is a complication or inherent to a procedure, such as atelectasis, ileus, air leak, or if the documentation is vague. Coding guidelines specify that in order to code a complication, it must be clinically evaluated, diagnostically tested, therapeutically treated, and documented by the surgeon. The complication must also result in an extended length of stay, necessitating increased hospital resources. The condition should not be expected nor part of the routine care. Should the same criteria apply when it comes to known side effects of medication where desired effect may also include known side effects but the benefit supersedes the harm? Should we require the physician to deem a known side effect as an adverse drug effect when in most occasions it is a common occurrence or inherent? Should we ask the physician to exclude the linking verbiage? Should they enter as expected or should they simply avoid addressing these issues? I wonder what other CDI or coding professionals are experiencing and if anyone has any suggestions. It is my hope that the utilization of the ICD-10 codes for adverse drug events would be reported in a way where clinicians can differentiate what is considered an adverse event versus an inherent side effect, which would be monitored in an inpatient hospital setting along with the excellent care. Back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Sharon. Uh, I think I will actually uh, look into that, and maybe I'll have a follow-up next week, Chuck. That was Sharon Savinsky. Sharon is the team manager for clinical documentation integrity specialists 
at Winchester Medical Center in Winchester, Virginia. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And again, thank you, Sharon, very much for uh, that reporting. You can read Sharon's article on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitoring News. Now it's time for our very popular segment called Talk Back. It features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. And this morning, Dr. Reamer is commenting on a report published last week by Rack Monitor that the OIG is poised to conduct DRG validation audits. So once again, here's Dr. Reamer. The Office of Inspector General of Health and Human Services, known as the OIG, released an active work plan item of assessing inpatient hospital billing for Medicare beneficiaries a few weeks ago. Chuck published a news alert in Rack Monitor on November 16th warning us, and you can refer to the link in my article. The background is that in 2016, 17% of all Medicare payments reimbursed in patient hospital stays to the tune of $114 billion. CMS and the OIG believe they are going to find evidence of substantial upcoding of DRGs and expect to recoup significant dollars. The first part of their plan is to analyze claims data to see how hospital billing has changed over time and examine inter-hospital variability within code sets. Then they are going to do targeted reviews to determine the extent of overcoding. This will likely lead to takebacks and penalties. The plan says, quote, the extent to which the hospitals build incorrect codes, close quote. But I am pretty sure they mean the extent to which hospitals got more money than CMS thinks they were entitled to. When institutions implement CDI programs, there is often a shift in the CC, MCC capture rate, and the case mix index. Those are the conditions which providers have not been documenting in the codable format, and the patients are being depicted as less sick and complex than they really are. It stands to reason that historical pre-CDI benchmarks might be falsely low. Early adopters of CDI might be several standard deviations off, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were the incorrect parties. Benchmarks are only as good as the data which comprises them. Administrators need to back off the quest to increase CMI and revenue. They should embrace the concept of wanting patients to be portrayed accurately and aim for reimbursement that is appropriate for the resource utilization. No administrator, organization, or network should solicit exaggeration of patient acuity or severity. As an ethical consultant, and I hope you don't think this is an oxymoron, I am supportive of CMS trying to ferret out and eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse. We should be responsible stewards of allocation of society's Medicare health care dollars. Unethical documentation and billing practices should be identified, quashed, and punished. But the auditors need to be responsible and credible, too. They should not be dealing in contingency because that fosters unethical practice on the clinical validation denial side. They should be judging a given encounter fairly and on its merits, not throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. I listed my recommendations in my article. First, the medical necessity needs to be addressed. The patient should be accurately depicted and placed in the correct status. Second-level reviews of clinical validation and OIG targets should be undertaken. Sepsis, encephalopathy, acute respiratory failure, you know the drill. 
nip the problematic ones in the bud. Lastly, perform an assessment of what I affectionately call the Reamer Ratio, which is no CCMCC over CC plus MCC plus no CCMCC in a given DRG set. Know what your hospital's benchmarking is. If you start seeing aberrancy, investigate. And I have to let you know that we're going to have to update my article because I have a feeling I left out the no CC over MCC in the denominator. It belongs there as well. As I always say, make the patient look as sick and complex in the medical record as they do in real life. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 349th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Erica, and I want to thank our special guests today, Terry Fledger, Lori Johnson, Dr. Jeffrey Learman, and our special guest, Sharon Sabinski, from the Winchester Medical Center in Winchester, Virginia. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk 10 Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere. And it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.